If you look towards the future, what do you think of? Do you think of blessing or do you think of a curse? Do you look at the future and think bad things or do you look at the future and think good things? Now you can say that we could, it's somewhat a more complicated question because in some ways we might look for good, in other ways we might look for bad. But when we do think about the future in general, we might easily expect that the future means curse. After all, every single one of us can look to the future and look to the point where we are going to experience death. There is a day that is coming that we will die and our bodies will go to the ground. And it's not always pleasant. I was talking to someone not too long ago whose, whose mother was, was continuing to weaken and move towards the point of death. And some of the suffering was so bad, it's not really the things I would even want to wanna say in front of other people. Um, and yet, this is what she's dealing with. And so then that makes us think, are we going to experience the curse as well? Uh, during the Sunday or Wednesday night services we've been doing, we've been looking at God's good purpose for us. But then someone wrote uh, on Facebook and said, it makes me, when I think about Ukraine, I think about cancer. It makes me wonder, is, there, is God's purpose really good? Can we really expect blessing? And what about those today who uh, would like to go home but can't? Because their homes are burned down to the ground. Doesn't that mean, make us think that we should not look forward to the future with blessing? But this is all the worse, though, when we think about what we deserve. Because if we think and we ask, what do we deserve from God? We have to look at our deeds and say we've not done what he's required us to do. We've not become the type of people that he's called us to be. We've not made the use of things that he's given us in a good way as we should. And indeed, We've done all sorts of wrong things. And so we might think that we deserve a curse, bad things. But our passage tells us something different, something other than what we might think if we really reflected upon it deeply. It tells us that we can expect blessing rather than a curse in the future. How could the story of a crucifixion a terrible and horrible way of dying give us a hope for blessing as we look towards the future. Well, that's what we want to see as we look through this text together. We'll see first the way to the crucifixion, the curse of the crucifixion, and then the blessing from the crucifixion. So let's consider it in that way. Jesus had been sentenced to death. He'd been condemned by Pilate, even though Pilate said that he was innocent. He still sentenced him to death. And now that was not, the place of judgment was not the place where Jesus was going to die. He was going to die on a place uh, called the skull. Now, it's funny, I hear around here, I hear this little phrase that people use. When they talk about the cross, they say, Jesus died on Calvary's cross. And, uh, And that is what we're talking about. Calvary is the place. But I don't think when we hear Calvary's cross, we get the sense of what it means. First of all, the cross is an instrument of of execution. And secondly, Calvary is taken from the Latin word, which means Calvaria, which is Calvaria, which means the skull. So he's going to the skull, which is the symbol of death. So that's where Jesus is headed, to the skull. That's literally what it was called. And so Jesus had to walk this way. And as he goes this way, 
our, our text focuses on three different groups of people. The first is Simon, the second is the crowds, and the third is the criminals. Let's look at each one of those. So the first thing is that when Jesus went to the cross, he, he had already been beaten, bloodied, whipped. He had the crown of thorns placed on his head. He had been up all night, and now he has to carry this heavy cross a significant distance to the skull. And so the, the people, the soldiers showed him a pity, but a cruel pity. And they had someone carry it for him. And the reason they did this is because they didn't want him to die on the way. They wanted to be able to carry out the crucifixion. And so it says that they, they called a man named Simon of Cyrene and they had him carry the cross for him. Now there's lots of stories about Simon that have come down to us in church history. And whether all of them are true, I don't know. But there is, there's definitely a tradition that Simon himself was actually a believer and well-known to the church. A lot of times in, in the Bible, it seems like people who are mentioned in the Gospels by name are often people that other people would know. So if this is the case, that Simon is, is, was, became a believer or was a follower of Christ and had to carry the cross, it is a pretty powerful image of what all believers are called to do. Because remember that Jesus had said in Luke chapter 9 that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so we recognize that, that we as believers are called to follow the way of Jesus. In essence, we have to carry the cross as we go to the way of paradise, as we'll see. And so what does that mean, to carry the cross? Well, it doesn't mean that literally we have to carry a giant pole or piece of wood, but it means that we have to die to everything in this world in the sense to say it can no longer be our highest good, that in which we find our hope and put all our confidence, but we find it in Jesus himself. That's what it means to take up our cross and and, and to follow Jesus, to die to the things that we might want to have. And when the Lord takes, us, takes them from us, to be willing to say, I'll let that go because I find my hope in Jesus. And so Simon is a sort of picture of that. The second group is the crowds that follow him, particularly the women. What's interesting is as Jesus goes, there's a large group of people that are following him and that are weeping and crying, and particularly the women are there. Uh, it's, as it notes, and it, it, they are crying over what has happened to Jesus. I think Matthew Henry, great commentator, definitely recommend him to you. You can easily find his commentary online if you have a question about the Bible, and particularly in how to apply it to daily life. Matthew Henry has a lot of uh, good ideas and hints on that, and he describes this crowd this way. These are not only his friends and well-wishers, but the common people that were not his enemies and were moved with compassion towards him because they had heard the fame of him and what an excellent, useful man he was and had reason to think he suffered unjustly. So even in the midst of the people that called out, crucify him, crucify him, there was still a significant amount of people that did see him as one who was at least good and a prophet. And how does Jesus respond to them? He gives a rather surprising response to the people. If you look at verse 28, He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, Jesus had already told his disciples as they were looking at the temple just a few short days before these events that all of the temple was going to be thrown down shortly. And he said in verse 20 of of chapter 21, 
When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know its desolation is near. And Jesus saw what actually did occur, which is that Jerusalem was going to be taken, that the people were going to be, be killed or taken into captivity as they rebelled against the, Roman, as the, against the Roman rule. And we can say that this judgment, in a way, did come upon them justly because they rejected the Savior that the Lord had sent them. However, we should also see that even as Jesus contemplated the judgment of the Lord, he also has compassion upon them. You can see that even as he's in the midst of suffering, even as he is carrying the cross, he's concerned about them. And his heart breaks as he considers what's going to happen to Jerusalem and for those who reject the Lord. And so it should be our compassion as well as we see Indeed, the just judgment, and like we prayed today in the psalm, you know, in some ways we desire it, that the Lord would act and deal with evil in this world, but we also have a heart of compassion for those who will not repent and believe. The third group that is focused on here is two criminals. And so Jesus is crucified not alone. He has two criminals crucified with him. One on his left and one on his right. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53 that we mentioned earlier, prophesied that the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. And this is a powerful demonstration of that fact. Indeed, Jesus has already been counted as a wrongdoer. He's being sentenced like a criminal. But there he is. There is a criminal on his right, criminal on his left. He in the middle, numbered among the transgressors. And so that is the way to the crucifixion. But let's consider the crucifixion itself more deeply, and particularly the crucifixion as a curse, as a terrible thing, and that is cursed, that is shameful. So there, when they arrived at the skull, they crucified him. And the crucifixion was, was sort of the ultimate way of punishing people. It was the worst sort of death. Because what would be done as often as what happened to Jesus, they would be beaten, they would be whipped, they would carry their cross, and then they would be affixed to a pole either by ropes or by nails. They would have a small little platform they could stand on, uh, which would make it very difficult for them to, which they could barely stand on, so they had to kind of adjust themselves continually, having a hard time to breathe. And they would, they would literally be set there for days on end as people passed by them and saw them often in their nakedness as they were affixed to that pole until finally they would die through asphyxiation, brain death, or heart attack. Sometimes after the end of many days, they would show some compassion on them and put them out of their misery by putting a sword through their heart. And that was the better way to bring it to an end. So this is a terrible, terrible way to die. It was looked upon with horror in the Roman world. Now, we might ask, Jesus had to die for our sins, and we know that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid those wages for us. But there's a question, why did he have to die in this way in particular? Could he have died in some other way? And I think that the Heidelberg Catechism that we confessed earlier brings this out really well, this great confession of the Reformation, as it kind of explains the Apostles' Creed. And it asks, is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? And the answer is yes. 
By this I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. And that idea comes from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, which says anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse, that they are cursed of God, that is liable to receive all judgment and bad things. So Jesus was cursed of God, and this way of death was pointing that out in a very strong and indisputable way, that he was cursed of God. Jesus, the Son of God, cursed of God. Now, how did Jesus respond to all of this? In a pretty amazing way. Look at what he says in verse 34. That's not pretty amazing, unbelievable way. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not what they're doing. He looks out on the people who had beaten him, who had whipped him, who put the crowns of thorn on his head, who had mocked him, who had nailed him to the cross, and were longing for his death. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. Now, in one sense, they did know what they were doing in the sense they knew they were, they were executing him. But in another sense, they didn't realize the full implications of, of crucifying the Son of God. And so he says, just don't count this against them as if, this was the, the, as if they were really attacking the Son of God. Instead, have mercy upon them and forgive them. And I think it's just that little phrase there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is, is, is a light that shines for us on how we should live in this world. Because inevitably, we are going to face people who are going to attack us, who are going to do wrong things to us, who are going to disappoint us, even enemies who may be trying to destroy us. But Jesus, seeing people like that, was able to have enough moral imagination to see beyond just the concrete and say, this isn't the only thing that is going on here. It's not just us versus them. There's other issues going on here and was able in light of that to have compassion on them. And that is a continual call to us to live as the Savior did. And the disciples learned that like Stephen, the first martyr, who who was killed by Paul, the apostle, and his men, when he was dying, looked up into heaven and said, Father, do not hold this against them. He could see beyond that. What a call to see beyond the things that we are experiencing, the suffering, the opposition that we face, the wrong things that people do, and to have compassion and to have mercy. Now, the, internal, the external aspect or the bodily aspect of crucifixion is horrible, but it also was not just that it was painful, it was also shameful. And shame is a big part of our lives. A lot of what we do and don't do is rooted on how we're seen by others and how they observe us and whether they're going to make fun of us. If you remember, maybe you noticed in February, we had our birthday prayer. And I asked, and I asked people to stand up if they had a birthday or anniversary in February. And one young man shot up with enthusiasm. And then he looked around and noticed no one else is standing up. And he slowly went back down. Am I doing the wrong thing? You see, that guides us. 
And then eventually, the people who had birthdays found the courage to stand up and let us pray for them. And, and then the young man got up as well. But so this is what we're talking about here is this sense of shame. And that's what Jesus is experiencing. It's not just that he is hurting physically. It's that his, his emotional heart is hurting too because he's held up to utter contempt both by what he experienced and then the specific things that happen. Consider that first of all, they take his clothes. And that should tell you about something about his condition at that time. Think about it. They take his clothes and they cast lots for them. So there they are. He's just taking his possessions and making a sport of them. And then the soldiers that are there, people that stood watching, the rulers, make fun of him and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers say, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. And then they put a, a sign up above him that is, is meant to mock his claim. Here's the king of the Jews crucified before you. In a way, mocking the whole nation as well. And then even the people that are with him, one of the criminals who's being crucified, says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so Jesus not only experienced the bodily pain, but he also experienced the emotional pain of being held in contempt by everybody around him. And so why did Jesus experience this curse, this cursed death, this shameful, excruciating pain? And the answer is because he was taking the curse for us. For us. Every single thing we read here, we need to add, he suffered, he was arrested, he, he was mocked, he was beaten, he, was, he died. We need to add for us, for us, for us, in our place. The Apostle Paul put this, this very succinctly in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us. He took the curse. That is what the law said we should give. The wages of sin is death. We have all sinned. And what do we deserve? We deserve the curse. We deserve death. Christ took that upon himself. Why? He redeemed us, Paul says, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He got the curse, we get the blessing. He exhausts the curse so we can get inexhaustible blessing. That's what's happening here. But let's consider this a little bit more deeply. The blessing of the cruci- from the crucifixion. Let's consider the blessing that flows from the cross. As you think about the cross... Imagine if you walked in today and you saw people um, wearing jewelry that, had, that represented a firing squad, that they had a shirt with an electric chair, um, that they adorned an electric chair with gold and jewels. You'd think, it's a pretty weird group. But all over the world, something very similar, perhaps even worse, 
is everywhere you go. This symbol of torture and capital punishment is found everywhere you go in the world, lifted up high into the sky. Well, why is that? Why in the world would that be? Because Jesus transforms the cross into a blessing. We get blessing as a free gift, and it's powerfully demonstrated in what happens with the other criminal on the cross. The one criminal mocked Jesus, but then the other one, in verse 40, says to the other criminal, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this man saw his sin. He saw that Jesus was innocent. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now what do you think that that criminal meant when he said when you come into your kingdom? Did he think of the afterlife? Did he think that he was going to somehow get down? That he might be held in remembrance? It's hard to know exactly. But what, what he did know is that there was hope in Jesus for something better. And so he cries out to Jesus for that. Now how would Jesus respond to that? I don't think so. You're a criminal. I did nothing wrong. I don't want anything to do with you. He could have easily said that. But how did he respond? He said, verse 43, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's very interesting that he uses that word. Because you remember that our first parents were created in the paradise of God with the blessing all blessing. But because they sinned, they were excluded from paradise. And what he's saying to this criminal is you get to come back to the place of blessing today. Now, he's indicating he'll be blessed in his death, but it pointed to so much more. It is the place of, of blessing. Now, Let's, let's dig down into this in conclusion. So what does this mean for us? Well, Isaiah understood this. It's what we read in our call to worship. In Isaiah 53, he describes the excruciating death that the Messiah would die, which we know is Jesus. But then, what does that mean for us? It means, come all you are thirsty, come to the waters and you have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The point is, the blessing is a free gift. That you get paradise for free because Jesus paid for it. You deserve the curse. You don't deserve paradise, but you get it. I mean, think about it. Think of the criminal on the cross. How much did he even know of, the, of salvation? How well did he really understand it? Probably not real well. How much, what had he done to merit it? Nothing. He just, all, he just said, I recognize you're right, and I'll say it. He asked Jesus for help. He, he had done, he saw his own sin, and he saw his hope in Jesus. And that was enough to usher him into paradise. And you know what? It's enough for you and me. And I'll tell you, I've been a Christian my whole life, as far as I know. Like, I can't ever remember a time when I didn't see my sin, see my need for Jesus, and want to follow him. I've done, made lots of mistakes. I've had ups and downs. I've sinned. Sure. 
but I've also grown. And I've done lots of Christian things. I've even become a pastor. I've done ministry. I've helped other people see Jesus. I've helped other people grow. I, I've, I've learned things. I've, I've grown as a person. I've seen the work of the Lord. But you know what? None of that stuff, none, is what earns me paradise. What gets paradise for me is what, that Jesus has earned it. And all that it is is that God has enabled me, it's not because I would have done it on my own, to see I am a sinner and there's hope in Jesus and that is the foundation by which I enter into paradise. And it's the foundation for all of us. We need to remember that. That that's where we all stand. We're all at different places. We've all done different things. Some of us may have more good works than the others. And I don't think we should be afraid to say that. Like we can talk about Christians do good works. But they're not the foundation by which we enter into paradise. The foundation is what Jesus has done and that we have received it. So that if someone comes in here this day and they, don't, and, and they, have, they are shut out from paradise, but they say, look, I can get into paradise through Jesus. I realize I can't get there on my own. And they say yes to that. Then today they have now have the right the invocable, irrevocable, sorry, right to enter into paradise because of what Jesus has done. You know, sometimes we look at people around us and we say, we, we see them, maybe they're a criminal. And we say, maybe they've done all kinds of wrong things and we, or, or maybe they have totally different views than we have about things. We say, man, they'll never listen. They'll never get there. All they need is to be like this criminal and to say, look, I know I've done wrong. Jesus hasn't. He is my hope. And then that's it. That's enough. They're going to change. They're going to grow. They're going to learn if God gives them life on this place. But that's always the way in which they got in. That's what it means for us that we can expect the blessing. And so that's what we can always fall back on. You know, we want to improve. We want to grow. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to have more good works. We should work as hard as we possibly can to do as much as we possibly can for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbor. But, but all those things are not the foundation. And when we really consider it, they're going to crumble. And we'll have to say, look, all that it is is that Jesus has won it for me. And now I have the right to paradise because of what he has done. And that is a firm foundation to which we can always go back to. No matter what happens, no matter how much we fail, no matter how many times we fall, that we're still like the criminal on the cross who has to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And to hear Jesus say again, today you have the right, and if, and if you were to die today, you would be with me directly in paradise. That is the blessing, my brothers and sisters, that comes from the cross. Amen.